starting a new series called At the Cross. And um, before we do, let's just, let's just pause for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pray that you would meet us here. God, we are confident that you're already here. And so maybe that prayer is really just a, a prayer to tune our hearts and minds to be attentive to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to sing your praises. And now thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way, but that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do and lead people to all truth. Lead us to hear a living word from the living God. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's what Dianara was able to read for us in our scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just going to be here for a few moments as a way of introduction into this series. What are we doing here as we're focusing on this, the, the next few messages at the cross? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's right after the book of Romans. When you've found it, go ahead and say, Amen. This is Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth, believers that he came in contact with. Uh, you find the story of how he came to them in Acts chapter 18, actually. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's kind of reviewing his history with them, why it is he came to them, how it is that he came to them. And in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, notice how he says it. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I, what's the next word right there? I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him what? And him crucified. Paul is determined about something. He's resolute. He's choosing a path of focus and it might seem like an exaggeration, but it was something that he deliberately resolved to do. He determined not to know anything among them, the Corinthian believers, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, in Acts chapter 18, he comes to the, the church in Corinth, or he's, he's really planting a church there. Prior to that, he had been in Athens, where he had, um, man... I guess you could say he, he kind of met his intellectual match with people. He, he met logic with logic, philosophy with philosophy, idea with idea. But when he moved on to Corinth, he felt compelled to labor among the Corinthians in a different way than he had amongst the Athenians. He wanted to labor in a way that would just arrest the attention of hardened hearts. And how is he going to do that? he felt compelled to lift up the cross. To lift up that very thing that seemed to be such a, 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 an oxymoron. That the God of heaven would actually use an instrument of torture of the Roman Empire as a way to draw hearts to him. He lifted up Jesus and him crucified, the Son of God, sacrificially giving himself as our Savior and substitute. And the thing is that Paul knew that there was power in fixing his eyes on the cross. How did he know that? How did he know that? I would submit that it was from first-hand experience. He knew the power of beholding the love of God, giving himself as a sacrifice for humanity. 
I came across these words from a book called Acts of the Apostles. Just wanna, it's kind of a long quotation, but I hope you, you get the sense of what Paul is saying or what Paul was experiencing. Ellen White says this, But to Paul, the cross was the one object of supreme interest. Ever since he had been arrested in his career of persecution against the followers of the crucified Nazarene, he had never ceased to glory in the cross. At that time, you know, the time when he was stopped in his tracks, basically, at that time there had been given him a revelation of what? Of the infinite love of God as revealed in the death of Christ. And a marvelous transformation had been wrought in his life, bringing all his plans and purposes into harmony with heaven. Mm. From that hour, he had been a new man in Christ. He knew by personal experience that when a sinner once beholds the love of the Father as seen in the sacrifice of his Son and yields to the divine influence, a change of heart takes place and henceforth, Christ is all and is in all. Amen. Can anybody resonate with the testimony of Paul there? That, wow, when I beheld the love of God in the sacrifice of his son Jesus, that changed everything. <laughs> That's what Paul's story was. And when he came to Corinth, he said, man, there's nothing that can change the heart like looking to Jesus on the cross. And so, over the next few weeks, our hope is to just do the same. <laughs> to fix our attention on Jesus and Him crucified. See, the revelation of God's infinite, unfathomable love through Christ changed Paul's life, and he knew it could change others' lives as well. And that's, that's what we want to experience over the next few weeks. Is that okay? Yeah? We're just going to lift up our eyes to Jesus, focusing. How we're going to do this is actually we're going to focus on the red letters in the story of Calvary. Right? The, the last things that Jesus says in his humanity before he gives his last breath. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. And my prayer is that we too will behold the infinite love of God and find that our hardened hearts will be melted and broken at the cross. We're going to do this one gospel at a time. Um, actually, okay, so, so today is Matthew and Mark because they're relatively the same story. They tell the same things. And then Luke will be next week and then John will be the week after. But one gospel at a time. Um, we're going to go to Matthew. That's where we'll fix our attention. So go with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And again, what we're looking for is the red letters. What did Jesus say from the cross that would allow us to behold the infinite love of God? Matthew chapter 27. And when you're there, go ahead and say, Amen. 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 By the way, just had a quick curiosity, a show of hands. How many of you actually do have a red letter Bible in your hands? Yeah? Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, Red Letter Bible, if you're unfamiliar, uh, that's where the words of Jesus, like the, the words that Jesus himself spoke while he was here on earth, um, that's what's in red print, or in, as it is in my Bible, it's kind of more pinkish, but anyways, it, red letters, nonetheless. And when you're looking at Matthew ch chapter 27, your eyes, looking at a Red Letter Bible, you actually don't see very much red. There's not much said. When you start kind of, go ahead and let your eyes start glancing through the, maybe the subheadings or just kind of scanning the story of Matthew 27. Matthew 27 starts 
with the morning. It would have been Friday morning, the morning after the Last Supper, the morning after he had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus hasn't slept a wink. And he goes from Pontius Pilate to, you know, there's just this trial of a, this farce of a trial and all of these things. And not much is necessarily said by Jesus. In fact, the relative silence of Jesus from the courthouse to Calvary is reminiscent, at least in my heart, of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, that he would be led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. It's as if Jesus, the Lamb of God, has said all he has needed to say. And now it's time to do all he needs to do. And what does he need to do? I mean, Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Matthew and Mark, when you compare their gospel accounts of the story of the cross, these closing scenes, they're more descriptive about what is done to Jesus and even what is said about Jesus, but not necessarily what is said by Jesus. And so as we kind of get this runway towards verse 46, that's where the red letters are from, from the cross. Do you remember what happened I mean, Matthew is telling us what, what was done to Jesus, and, and maybe you're like me. I, I cringe when I read these things. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not for the, the light of heart. Um, this, is, this is serious business. In summary, what we have is that Jesus was wrongfully tried, right? He, he was found innocent of any crime or violation worthy of punishment, he was handed over to the wishes of a violent mob that was really, I would say, demon-possessed. He was, he was rejected, and instead, Barabbas, a, a criminal, was chosen in his stead. And Roman soldiers beat him physically, mocked his divine identity and his royalty. Priests and passers-by blasphemed and reviled him, asserting that a real king, that the real son of God, would come down and save himself, not knowing that the real king, the real son of God, came not to save himself, but to save you and me. And so when the red letters do appear, what is Jesus experiencing? What is the revelation of the infinite love of God there? And I will be completely transparent. That when it comes to describing the cross, I always feel like I fall short. You know, that when we, when we talk about Jesus and what he gave and who he is to us, and by implication, who we are to him, I always feel like human language falls short. So I hope that as we're going through this study, that, that you would really just allow the Holy Spirit to be the one to impress upon you the truth of Jesus' sacrifice. Yeah. So there we are. Let's go to verse 45. Verse 45. The Bible says, Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. 
if you're remembering the narrative, it was actually at the third hour that Jesus was crucified. That was the time of the morning sacrifice. At the sixth hour would be basically the middle of the day, noon. And from six to three, which would have been the time of the evening sacrifice, it was completely dark over all the land. It was as if creation recognized that the, the source of light and life himself was being extinguished and they, they withdrew. And in verse 46, the Bible says, And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear what Jesus said? In our English verbiage, it was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so let's just kind of sit on these words and look for the infinite love of God in these red letters. He says, my God. Now, aside from the exclamatory desperation that we hear in this, I want us to listen closely to really what this reveals about Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just calling out to God. He's saying, my God, yeah, my God. In his heartache, he's crushed by the weight of humanity's sin, and he says, my God. You know, not too long ago, I, I came across a few uh, video files uh, on our computer of when our kids were younger, and when Jenna, our oldest, when she was a toddler, um, she, I, I totally forgot about this until we saw this uh, a little while back. She used to address me, not just as daddy. She would address me as my daddy, my daddy. Yeah, that, that's what she would call me. She would call, you know, it, it wasn't that she was talking about me to someone else. Oh, my daddy did this. And, you know, but and she was really articulate at a very, very young age. It was so weird to see such a little body saying such big things. Anyways, um... But one of the things was her tendency to say, my daddy, my daddy. And so when she'd called to me, I mean, you can kind of imagine the, the way that my heartstrings were pulled, right? <laughs> you can imagine that because it communicated something about her own heart toward me. Yeah. She saw me not just as a daddy, but her very own daddy, my daddy. The one who belonged to her and the, the one to whom she belonged. And when Jesus says from the cross, my God, again, not just saying God, but saying my God. I think there's something there. There's a pointer to the closeness that Jesus had enjoyed with the Father. A oneness he had enjoyed from eternity past, right? And in that moment, he was desperately longing for that assurance of, of just kind of resting in that, my God. But he doesn't just say it once, right? He says, my God, my God. This is what um, theologians would call a double vocative, you know, an address that is twice repeated. A double vocative. It's a form of address that Jesus uses actually a handful of times, maybe three or four times. In the Gospels, one of those is in uh, Luke chapter 10. It's a story of Jesus and his friends coming to the home of Mary and Martha. Martha is, 
is preparing a huge meal for this huge group of people, and she's busy about her business. Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at Jesus' feet. Maybe you remember this story. Martha's huffing and puffing. Lord, why don't, don't you care that I'm left serving alone? Do you remember how Jesus speaks to her? She said, or Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part. Why didn't Jesus just say Martha once over? He said it twice because he needed to arrest her attention. The other time in Luke uh, chapter 22, I think it's verse 31, um, Jesus says to Peter, he addresses him as his original name, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Another time, I, more red letters, this isn't in the Gospels, it's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. It's, it's Saul. He's on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it hard to kick against the goads? Think about these stories. Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon, Saul, Saul. When Jesus addressed someone twice, it was because he was trying to get their attention because they were moving in an opposite direction than he was. Their hearts were trending in counter purposes to his. But in this case, he's saying, my God, my God, why? Because he's feeling like they're moving in opposite directions. And this is the first time he's felt that. He can't handle this. And he's crying out in utter desperation, my God, my God. This is a completely foreign feeling to Jesus, who has lived in eternal oneness with the Father. They've always moved in unison together. And after this address, this double address, my God, my God, then this heart-wrenching question, why? Why have you forsaken me? Now, a lot of times we ask this question, why? For those of us who are, have young children in the home, you hear that probably two dozen times a day. <laughs> but, um, you know, oftentimes those questions are you know, they, they deserve explanations, and you expect to give an answer, a logical reason. But I don't think Jesus was looking for logical reasoning here. Sometimes when we ask questions like, why, it's not because we need an answer. It's because we need assurance. Isn't it? I mean, sure, yeah, sometimes we ask those questions, and a, and a why would be, I mean, a, an explanation would be helpful but more often than not, when those explanations come, we're not ready for them. <laughs> we're in an emotional state where all we need is presence and assurance. So when I hear this question, why have you forsaken me? I don't think it's an appeal for a logical explanation. I think it's a cry of feeling deserted, utterly abandoned. In fact, the word forsaken, it literally communicates the idea, not just of being left behind like, you know, uh, you know, I left my grocery bag here, and I went there. No, it's actually being left behind without anything to hang on to. Left behind in dire straits, left in a condition of desperate lack. It's as if there's nothing left in the tank. And when we hear this question, I think it's revealing something about the magnitude of what Jesus was really experiencing 
It was more than just nails. Although, don't let me minimize nails. It was more than just a crown of thorns. It was more than the lacerations and all of these physical abuses. What Jesus was experiencing on the cross is something that you and I have never experienced. We've had a taste of it. Any of us who call ourselves sinners has a taste of the separation that results when sin sets in, right? Separation from the Father. But this was in its absolute form. It was separation from the Father, the kind of separation that sin ultimately results in. And it just makes me ask the question, wow, do I really understand the magnitude of sin? The weight of sin's sinfulness. May we read it in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Right? Sin earns its rightful income is death. And not just the expiration of our physical ex- uh, life, but the utter separation from the Father who is our life. You see, sin is more than just a stain on our conscience or a shortcoming to feel embarrassed about. Don't fall under the illusion that sin is benign, that it's trite, that it's fixable and manageable. No, sin is more than any of us could ever handle. And Jesus on the cross actually became sin. Whoa. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Mm. And this is where that, that cry comes from. Why have you forsaken me? He is becoming that. He is experiencing that. And yet beyond the the raw emotion of that moment and what Jesus was experiencing, I think there's even a bigger picture here. Because Jesus is not only crying out, I would submit to you that Jesus is actually quoting Scripture. Did you realize that? Do you have a footnote there in your Bible anywhere? Uh, At the end of verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's actually a cross-reference. This is verbatim from Psalm 22, verse 1. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is going through it, and he is crying this out. But it's actually a quotation from Psalm 22. Go ahead and you can keep a a finger here in Matthew 27 and go to that, that amazing messianic psalm. Psalm 22. In the middle of the Bible, you'll find this hymn, this Hebrew hymn book. The Psalms, Psalm 22, verse 1. When you're there, go ahead and say, I found it. Okay. Psalm 22, verse 1. The Bible says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Jesus is quoting Jesus is quoting the words of David. And I wonder, could it be that in the silence that's leading up to this, right? You know, the relative silence of Matthew and Mark as they're telling this this Calvary story. Could it be that Jesus, you know, he may not be saying much, but his mind is racing. And in the silence leading up to all of this, Jesus was waging a war of faith. How? By setting his heart on Scripture. 
He's finding himself in a story that's been told before, a story from Psalm 22. And he's taking courage in the reality that this, all that he was experiencing in real time, was not outside the plan and power of God. Man. (laughs) So go there. You're there. Psalm 22. I mean, the prophetic parallels are undeniable. You go down a few verses to verses 6 to 8. In verse 6, the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I mean, this is probably descriptive of David's experience, but man, it just, the way that God's Spirit articulates that in this psalm is just beyond, it goes beyond David's own own experience. It says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And if you've still got a bookmark there in Matthew 27, you can almost read Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 together and just say, "This this is its fulfillment right here. You go down a few more verses and you just start to realize, wow, that, I mean... Let me just pause here. Even verse 8 again. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These are the very things that were being thrown at Jesus. The, the crowd that day, I, I doubt that they even realized that they were quoting scripture. But they were. It's incredible is to even think that the verbal abuses that Satan was stirring around the foot of the cross. That Satan was kind of inciting in that unfeeling crowd may have been the very things that directed Jesus' mind to Psalm 22 in the first place. Whoa. So there, Psalm 22 again, a few verses later, verse 14. Let's go there. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws, you have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And we can even keep going. I can count all my bones. They, they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You see, Jesus, under extreme duress, is likely well aware you know, as, he's, as all of these things are being done to him, he's probably well aware that the prophetic promise is actually being played out. And this is his story. Sure, he feels this, this very pain and abandonment, but it's not in vain. And as he's going through this, as he's enduring the shame of the cross, he realizes that God's word, God's purpose that that which they had come together on in, in the council of eternity past, before the foundation of the world, this is all coming to play. And his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry, while being a reflection of his utter anguish, I would submit to you it's even an attempt to teach others around him. I don't know, is, is that far-reaching or overreaching? Maybe. But I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus is not just consumed with his own experience, but he's wanting others to know what's going on too. 
That scripture is being fulfilled. It's an attempt to almost to give hope, to spark in others memory of the prophecies that were in real time being fulfilled, being witnessed, being experienced. It was an invitation to actually look to him as the promised one, the Lamb of God. And in, in Psalm 22, if you just kind of keep letting your eyes scan the verses, there is a very interesting, there's a pivot point in the psalm. Right in the middle of verse 21, you know, there's this plea in verse 20 and 21. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then right here, I have this highlighted in my Bible. It's separated from the rest of what comes before and then what comes after. There's this one phrase at the end of verse 21. It says, you have answered me. What in the world? (laughs) You have answered me. I've often read Matthew 27, verse 46, and I just kind of wonder, this is, this is a question that Jesus is asking. He's experienced oneness with the Father all his life. They've had this direct line of communication. And, and, and I just had a hard time imagining, how is it that Jesus could ask a question but not get a response from his Father? But in Psalm 22, the prophecy says, you have answered me. We don't hear it in Matthew 27. We don't necessarily even see it. But somehow, through the eyes of faith, Jesus did. And I believe as his mind was set on Psalm 22, maybe in his humanity, all he had energy to say was verse 1. But his heart and mind kept going through the psalm. You hear what I mean? That his heart and mind tracked along. And he knew, you have answered me. And so when you get to Matthew 27, a few verses after this cry. Back in Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. We're not certain what he said, at least according to Matthew and Mark. We'll look at it again in Luke, and also in John in the coming weeks. But I would submit to you that this cry was a cry of victory. He has answered me. In fact, I don't know if you've turned away already from Psalm 22, the last few phrases, the last words of Psalm 22 can actually be translated. Where is it? Psalm 22, the very last phrase says, that he has done this. Some would submit that this phrase can actually be translated, it is done. Or it is finished. We'll get to that in John. We'll get to that in John in a couple weeks. (laughs) But do you see the infinite love of God even just in these few red letters? What Jesus says from Calvary Even quoting from Scripture, we see that he was living by faith in the word and will of God. You know, there's this phrase, the faith of Jesus. We read it in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, that the patience of the saints, it's it's those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And I would submit that's, that's a dual application. Yes, faith in Jesus, like directing your faith and trust to him and him alone. But there's also an experience of God's people that he longs for us to have. And that's having a similar faith 
that Jesus had, that the, that the faith that Jesus had would be put in us and that we would live out that kind of trust. That in our extreme adversity, we would cling to the word of God just as Jesus did. <laughs> that we'd be faithful even, even to death. What Jesus says from Calvary reveals both the depth of his love and also the depth of his faith. And so, we've just looked at these, these few red letters today. And my simple appeal would just be to invite you to come to the cross today. <laughs> Meet Jesus at the cross. Come to the cross today and every day. And when you come, what, what, what do you want to hear? What, what will you hear? What will we find? I would submit that at the cross, we, we would see the assurance of our belonging, just as Jesus did. My God, right? That the, because of Jesus, we can call God our God too. He is not just God alone. He is my God. He is your God. And that's not, that's not because I've earned the right to say so. No. Jesus says, when he has resurrected, he says, Go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Because Jesus experienced a brokenness in the family of heaven, he could stand in the gap and encircle us in that family. <laughs> His God is our God. We can come to the cross today and have the assurance of belonging, not because of what we've done, but because of everything he has done. At the cross, hey, let's, let's come to the cross and feel the weight of sin's sinfulness. Let's ask that God would undo the illusion of sin's, uh, you know, manageability. But when we come to the cross, we can feel the weight of sin's sinfulness, the magnitude of separation from God for what it truly is. Death, not just of body, but of the soul, of our entirety. And in the same moment, we can also embrace the promise that because of Jesus, we are forgiven. Yeah? You know, again, the, the question that Jesus asked, why have you forsaken me? One of the, the ways that whenever I read this, I kind of simply answer, well, it was so that you and I would never be forsaken. Yeah. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. At the cross, embrace the assurance of belonging. Even embrace the weight of sin's sinfulness. But don't stop there. Embrace the assurance of forgiveness, the promise of it. And finally, realizing that because he has forgiven us, because he has not forsaken us, whatever we may be going through, whatever curse of sin we may be bearing or seeing around us in the lives of those we love or in our own experience, know of a certainty that you and I are not abandoned. Can you hear that today? When you go to the cross and you see Jesus, why have you forsaken me? It's so that you and I would never be forsaken. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the promise is as sure today as it was then. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, I know right here in these seats, in our couches at home, wherever you may be watching this, I know that people, even this week, you've been wondering, God, where are you? He has never left, and he never will. There's someone you love today 
that is wondering this. Why have you forsaken me, God? And again, they may not be looking for an explanation, but they may be looking for an assurance. Would you share this? Just be a hope, a beacon of light for them. Hey, he hasn't left. He hasn't left. And pray, pray with, pray for, yes, but lean into the promise of forgiveness and not being forsaken. The last thing, that as, as we come to the cross, hey, yes, let's embrace the assurance of belonging. Let's embrace even the weight of sin's sinfulness, but also the promise of God's forgiveness. Last thing, when we come to the cross, let's embrace victory in God's word. Yeah, no matter how dark the night, no matter how tall the mountain, God's word can define our realities more than our feelings. Did you hear what I said there? What we feel, I mean, yeah, that, that is, it becomes our perception, that becomes our reality, but you know what? There's a greater reality than that. Not just what I feel, but who I have faith in and what he has said about that. Jesus, yes, he was surrounded by all these things. He did feel utterly forsaken. Even in the moment, he couldn't even see beyond the portals of the tomb. And yet by faith, his mind raced through Psalm 22 to the end. <laughs> right? He didn't stop at verse 1. He got to the, you have answered me. And then it is done at the cross, at the cross. Let's see the light. There is victory and hope in God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, that's our desire. We want to be near the cross. We want to glory in the cross. Because in Jesus, we see our sufficient sacrifice. And so as we stand here to our feet, we're just simply saying, thank you. We're also confessing to you that we open our hearts to receive you. just want to lean on the promise of John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. It says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the will of man or the will of flesh, but born of God. Amen. And so today, would you please see the confession of our hearts? We are receiving Jesus. Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone who has felt forsaken. And I ask God that you would give them divine assurance. Words that they can see on paper. Words that they can hear with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The assurance of the Holy Spirit that they, they are not abandoned. Lord, I pray that you would see us through our darkest valleys and that you would be all and in all. Thank you, Jesus, for walking the shoes that we should have walked so that we can walk the shoes that you deserve. Lord, we accept you today and we rejoice in the assurance of your salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, Amen and Amen.